Oh, he was SoundCloud. But when I say SoundCloud, I imagine like raps. <laughs> yeah, from like Muslim, Muslim rap without bars. Yeah. So. <laughs> Alrighty, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We're looking at uh, Faraz Rabbani's Absolute Essentials of Islam, and the floor is yours. Okay. Um, how do you want me to start this? Any way you'd like. Okay. Um, so I believe the first chapter is named belief and it's, it's, it explains, um, the term belief and how, what the meaning is in terms of Islam. Um, so belief is the center of Islam. Um, Allah wants his followers to followers to believe in him, um, and believe in his word and his teachings. Um, and it's very important because you cannot, you cannot rightfully follow Islam if, if you don't believe in Allah, which is the primary goal here. Um, and belief in Allah, it means to accept that he is the highest God, that he is the one, and that there's no other God besides him. Um, he is worthy of worship, and no other God besides him deserves to be worshipped or should be worshipped. He is basically characterized as being perfect. Um, he, he can be classified into three categories, which are the personal attributes, five negative attributes, and the seven affirmative attributes. So the first attribute um, is the personal at attribute, which is his being, which you can connect the being to personal. Because uh, if you just imagine yourself as a being, then you have personal attributes to yourself. So the same thing can be said for Allah. Um, he has negative attributes, um, which is which are beginning, beginninglessness, endlessness, oneness, self-sustenance, and the the way I interpreted this was the ability to just create anything, to create everything and anything. His affirmative attributes are life, knowledge, will, power, hearing, sight and speech. Um, and it's important to point out that as for us being mortal and human um, and to the capacity that we can think about him and think what we know about him, um, he really can't be truly, uh, he can't be concepted by us um, perfectly. Um, it's just simply not possible because we are we are only mortal, we're only beings, and we only have the knowledge that he has provided us with, um, with him being the most, the only God, um, he has more knowledge than any of us. Um, so we can say that we understand Allah, we can never truly understand um, Allah. Um, he has angels. Um, they... The angels can't disobey him. Um, they do everything that he commands and they don't have any genders um, and they don't they don't live the way that mortals do because they're not, so they don't need to sustain themselves uh, with food um, in order to live. Um, he, Allah wants us to believe in his books. Once again, um, it's very important because it, these are the books that he provided us with knowledge so that we know how to follow Islam and how to live. It's not just about the religion part, but it's about how how we should live our lives to the truest uh, capacity. Um, and then there are um, books that were revealed by him, which were the Torah, 
um, the Palm of David, the Gospel of Jesus, um, and the, the Quran. And the Quran was the last revealed book. Um, Allah wants us to believe in the messengers. Um, so he sent out many messengers, um, beginning with Adam and with the last messenger being Muhammad. Um, and historically, his uh, prophets had issues with retaining the belief of followers. There was many conflicts uh, between who, who were prophets and who could be credible and whatnot. But um, that's what happened <clears throat> on the mortal world. So when Allah sends out these prophets, he, he doesn't send them, he doesn't question them. He just sends them to us. And it's our, it's our responsibility to believe in their word because they are messengers of Allah. So they're carrying his message to us. Um, and all of these messengers are were chosen because of their truthfulness, um, they're trustworthy. They were able to, they were considered worthy enough to retell um, the messages and stories of God. They're smart um, and they cannot commit any sins. And they can't be the opposite of these because they were chosen for these reasons. Um, in the Quran, there's uh, the talk of the last day, which is also the day of judgment. It's the day that everyone's going to pass away and then be resurrected. Um, in order to believe in the resurrection, you um, you should also believe that there is um, a heaven, there is a hell, um, and there is the in-between. Um, you have to believe in destiny because nothing happens. Oh, oh, the saying... Um, I believe the saying goes like everything happens for a reason or nothing happen nothing happens without reason. I th I think that's the way we should conceptualize um our lives on earth because that's the way that Allah has made them. So whenever something happens to us and we think nothing of it, um it's actually all planned out by Allah no matter how big or small it is. Um it's our destiny and um only God knows what our destiny is and everything happens for the reason because we are on our journey to our destiny. Um, and then I had some, I was a little bit thrown off with the chapter on the rulings of the sacred law, but what I could um, understand, what I really did grasp from this chapter was um, this something called a uh, fisk or um, um, I believe he, it was about, I have a note here somewhere. Um, something about like disbelief. Um, so like my notes are a little bit wonky on that, but for disbelief, let's say something is supposed to happen or something should be a certain way and someone tries to stop the way that it should be um, or prevent it from becoming, I guess, its destiny that's considered wrong. So it's kind of like you shouldn't be a barrier uh, to something that is meant to happen. Because um, if you do that, then you are acting against God and that's, that's, that's sinning. Um, let's see what else I know. Um, I 
there was a lot of that chapter that I skipped over because there, there was more that I wanted to review. Um, so I went to the chapter of purification. Um, this is something that I'm still learning. Um, and I, so in the, in the Masala, um, I've had other Muslim women teach me. Um, but uh, the idea or the notion of purification, um, it's very important to purify yourself when you are going to pray to God, um, you must make sure that you are, that you're clean. Um, and if you're not clean, then you have to clean yourself. It's, it's the most uh, sacred way of, you know, presenting yourself to God. Um, one of the things mentioned was how you should basically bathe. Um, so, and when you bathe, there's a certain way that you have to do it to make sure that you clean yourself correctly. Um, so when you bathe, you must, uh, when you get in the, the shower, you basically have to take the water and basically wash all of your head um, and your face. And then you start moving from the right side of your body to the left side of your body, all the way down to your feet. Um, and you have to even get like the, the crevices um, like behind your ears underneath your nose you have to rinse your mouth um and and in prayer um it's the same thing um you have to clean as much as you can of yourself that you're able to at that moment um if you have any jewelry or if you have anything that's like preventing the skin from being clean then you have to remove it otherwise you if you decide to let's say if you're wearing earrings and you don't take them off and you've washed everything else except for that part of your ears um, and you try to pray, it's not going to be, um, I guess, acceptable prayer because uh, you could have cleaned yourself, but you decided not to. Um, and then, oh, I did also mention that you have to make this intention um, known. So you do have to say, uh, you know, God's name to make sure that you you're making that intention that you're about to pur purify yourself uh, for God and then you start washing yourself um and then that was all I was able to get to okay that was all very very good uh, excellent let's go back to the top and I'm going to take you to level two and all these things okay. let's go up to the top of my book here so, so one thing to note is how thin this book is. And so basically in uh, it's two parts. One is belief and the other one is action. And so what you need to know as a believer is literally basically a paragraph. And then in terms of action, it's literally like uh, when it comes down to it with all the special font and everything, it's literally like two pages. That's the whole foundation of your Islamic thought and practice. And then everything else is, is secondary. And so, so looking at uh, uh, on my PDF, it's page 13. So, um, uh, we have these two ayahs in the Quran. The messenger believes in what was sent down to him from his Lord. And the believers all believe in Allah and his angels and his books and his messengers. We make no distinction between any of his messengers. They say we hear and we obey. Grant us your forgiveness, our Lord, unto you as a return. And so when we look at that passage, 
Oh, by the way, if I'm ever going too fast, just you know, tell me to slow down and repeat anything. So when we're looking at that passage in the Quran, what is it saying? That, okay, it's basically Allah is saying, believe in X, Y, Z, and we obey. And for all the different ways we fall short, we seek forgiveness. And the forgiveness is a huge, huge important aspect that I would probably emphasize in this book uh, because it allows for all the different ways we fall short. And it's a major, major part of Islam. And think about it in class when we went through this story of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, and the devil, the fundamental difference was that the devil never asked for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve asked for forgiveness, they were forgiven. And, and so then the second passage, which is a hadith, whoever meets his Lord without having associated partners with him will enter paradise. So it's going so far as to say belief is that central. It ties into your uh, salvation. But a way to think about this is when we're talking about belief, it doesn't just mean what I, in my brain, take as true. It's I take it as true to such a degree that it guides my intentions. So to make an example, suppose you have two twins. You're going to see this in, in our class. You have two twins and two other people. One walks up to each person asking for money. And the first person gives that person, let's say, $2 just to make them go away. The other person gives them $2 because they want God to reward them. In both cases, the person who asked for money went away. And the actions was the same. This person gave $2, that person gave $2. But the intentions were completely different. And in the case of the first person, he already got his reward. He wanted the person to go away, the person went away, got his reward. So should that person expect reward from Allah? Because he already got the reward, right? Maybe Allah will still reward that person. That's up to Allah, but that person should not expect it. Mm -hmm. And then let's think of another scenario of two two other twins. One person is an atheist. One person is, is a Muslim. Same scenario, someone comes to each of them, asks for money, they each give them $2. And they both just do it out of the goodness of their heart. Same intention. Should the first person expect a reward from Allah? They don't even believe Allah exists. So that person, I mean, again, Allah might be kind to that person, but that person should not be expecting a reward. This person, the second person, kind of depends on the particulars of what their intention was. Maybe just purely out of the goodness of their heart is sufficient as an intention. Mm-hmm. So, so the point is that belief ties directly into your intentions. Yeah. And so it's not just a matter of, all right, this person believes in Islam, this person believes in Christianity, this person believes in Judaism, so forth and so on. It's, it's a level of, of a relationship with Allah, which then informs your intentions. So then going into belief in Allah being the most central point of all belief, when we're talking about belief, it's also dictating, you know, how you orient your life. And so when we discuss in our class, the idea of an ilah, everyone takes something as an ilah. Some people might take multiple things, but that's sort of what you're relying upon to orient your life. 
them. And, and so on the one hand, it is a statement of the tongue. I believe in a law, but it's also a lifelong journey seeking perfection in it too, where my life is truly oriented to focusing on a law. It doesn't mean that you're a person who lives in a cave separated from society. It means you're more often than not, it means you're a member of society participating in such. So then the belief I believe, I accept and believe that Allah most high exists is one and there is no God but Allah. So that's all pretty straightforward, right? And we'll talk about existence in just a second again, and that he's one, and there's no God but him, mm-hmm. and that he's free of need. Yet all is in need of him. So everything ultimately depends upon Allah. So for example, I might be getting up earning my own, but if there's no air, I'm dead, right? And so every one of us, there is dependence there somewhere. You know, it is impossible to be independent. It's literally impossible to, to be independent of the world, which means by extension, it's impossible to be independent of Allah. And so he's the creator and sustainer of all things. That I think is straightforward. You get that. And he is the only one worthy of worship. So think about how we define worship in the class. You're giving your most extreme love. You're taking him as your ilah, he's the only one worthy of being an ilah and none other, none other deserves it. So that's pretty straightforward, I think. Bam. Now, Allah's character, next piece, Allah is characterized by all attributes of perfection. And I'm cautious about this word perfection because people say, well, humans are imperfect, but I don't really know what that means. Does it mean that we make mistakes? Sure, but that's part of our design as humans. And so we would then say, yeah, Allah does not make mistakes, if that's our definition of perfect. Or we might use these attributes as he's the ultimate in everything that we might call positive. That could be another definition of of perfect, right? Now, when we get into these three categories, just like you described, the personal attribute relates to him being and, and what this means is, at the bare minimum, he exists. And then, like you said, all other attributes uh, emanate from him. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I like that. When we're talking about negative attributes, we're basically saying these are attributes that are defining Allah by what he is not. So he does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. By saying he's one, he is not many. There is no others. And by self-subsistence, what do you think that means? How is that a negative attribute? What does he not have? Wait for self-existence? Self-subsistence. Um, he doesn't have anyone else to sustain on one himself. Yeah, or he doesn't have any need. You know. And then absolute dissimilarity to creative things. I don't know why they make these things so complicated for, for precision. It's basically saying, uh, I forgot what term you used. That was pretty good too. Um, here in a nutshell, we're saying, oh, what you described for, for, for absolute dissimilarity created things, you're saying like he, he creates everything. That would be more in the category of will and power in the next, in the next list. I mean, that's a small detail. It's like potato, potato. But uh, it means that there's no possible analogy or similarity to him. That nothing, just like you said later on, you know, we can't really comprehend Allah. 
we can't even comprehend anything similar to a law. And so, yeah, these are the negatives. Defining God by what he is not. No beginning, no end, no others, no need, and no similarity. And the affirmative would be those things where we say, here's what he does have, life, knowledge, will, power, hearing, sight, speech. Uh, what do you think about the fact of hearing, sight, speech? We don't say that Allah has eyes, ears, and a tongue. So how would you understand hearing, sight, speech? What do you think? Because this is a common theological debate. I mean... You can think about it. Think about it in two ways. I mean, I I think yeah. of him creating us. So, I mean, we're his children, right? And then I feel like he's also in us at the same time. So, whenever whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we do, yeah. he is also, or Allah is also doing it. Um, but yeah. not really. So they, Allah knows at all times because we're also Allah's in us. And okay. <laughs> Yeah, but make it even simpler. Yeah. This is part of the reason uh, for the questions is that part of the reason we're going through all this is that this is literally the ultra basic stuff in all the different ways we find ourselves complicating things. We're going to try to get rid of all that stuff. And so the core here is when we're saying he has hearing, sight, and speech, we're saying, yeah, he does, but just not in the way a human does. Right. And so what you're going to see over and over again for these first couple of discussions is trying to figure out how to express these things as simply as possible. And what you're gonna find when that happens, it's gonna create a certain type of relief uh, by getting rid of all the complications and how we look at these things. So he has life, but he doesn't die, right? And so what does life mean for me versus what does life mean for Allah? Maybe it means the other things on this list. Maybe it means simply that he's not dead. And the knowledge, I think that makes sense. He knows all. Will means he has his own ability. Or he, you know, he has his own uh, will for what should happen. And power would be he has his own ability. And then hearing sight speech, he, he, uh, he detects everything. Because there's other passages in the Quran, like for example, it says that Allah has a throne or Allah has hands. And so the way we understand that is, yes, it does. Yes, he has these things, but we don't know what they mean compared to what we understand in the world as a throne or hands. Everything. So just like hearing sight and speech, we're basically saying, yes, he has these things, but not like how a human does, as far as we know. Yeah. Okay, good. And then these other passages, that's all pretty straightforward. Uh, <clears throat> uh, belief in angels. Uh, question. Why does Allah have angels? I mean, doesn't he, can't he do everything all by himself? What do you think? No. Know what? No. Three <laughs> questions. So, so the short answer is, yeah, Allah can do everything. But the way he set up reality is that he has angels operating reality. Mm-hmm. And so does he need real? Does he need angels? No. Does he need for us to exist? No. But he made us, he made the world, he made reality itself. And so uh, so the, he set up reality so that angels are operating it, or he set up angels to operate reality. 
Okay. Now, it's so the real question I'm asking is why? Why did he make angels? Likewise, why did he create us? Likewise, why did he have, why did he make a day of judgment? And the Islamic question to the why is because it was his will that he is all powerful. He is free to do as he wills. And then we surrender to the system that he set up. Meaning why did he set up? He didn't need to do any of this. And so he doesn't even need my existence, but why did he give me existence? Because it was his will. And he's free to do as he wills, and thus I surrender. You know, why did he just put all of us in heaven? Or why did he just put all of us in hell? But instead, why did he set up this whole system like this? That was his freedom to do so. And we surrender to it. And so, so what's also taking place when we're, we're listing out all these beliefs is we're basically saying, how does reality operate? You know, how does God operate reality and such? So one way is with angels. Another way is with books. And so if Allah wanted, he could have just communicated with each of us individually. But the system he set up is that he has prophets and messengers. Do you remember what the difference is between a prophet and a messenger? This is from early in the semester. Check your notes. So a prophet is someone who Allah has appointed to call their people to Allah um, and to be a model on how to do it. And a messenger is a prophet with the same responsibilities, but has also received a book to deliver to their people. Okay. So it's kind of like they received additional instructions. And so here among the many prophets are the Torah that Moses received, the Psalms that David receives, and the language here is kind of tricky. It says the gospel of Jesus. What, what the author is actually saying is that this is not the same as the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is a different book. And so it might have been easier not to call it the gospel because people are going to be confused. Because even in Christianity, we don't say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are revealed to them or are revealed to Jesus. They're about Jesus. And then the Quran is the completion of it all. And by the way, feel free to interrupt if you have any questions and such. And so this is all just laying out basic foundations. So we talked about messengers. A messenger is a prophet who also received a book. And then here's some attributes of messengers. And what is it basically saying? Truthfulness, it means that they, truthfulness and trustworthiness, it means they have to have perfect character. They may make mistakes, but they never disobey a law. But they have to be perfect in their character, which makes sense. If they're calling you to God, then they have to be the perfect model too. Because we all know examples of people who might be claiming to be religious, but they have bad character. And we call that person a hypocrite. And then the third attribute, they convey the message. And then they're also intelligent. They're usually the smartest people in their communities. And they're sinless. And a sin, uh, try, uh, try to define sin. It'll be the same exercise. You're probably going to give me a complicated definition. I'm going to give you a super easy definition. Try. Everything that is bad. Okay. Not bad. Not bad. So a sin would be any disobedience of a law. Dang it. I was going to say that next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. 
And so, so those are some attributes about, about messengers. And the key point to take is that they never disobey a law, kind of like angels never disobey a law. And because they're the models, they have to be perfect in their character. Again, they're human, they make mistakes, they might get upset here and there, but they never, like they never lie. Listed on the next page. Yeah. And then the belief in the last day. If we remove the belief in the last day, and we say you're just existing in this world, then here's a question. Is this world fair? What do you think? Does what goes, you know, like we say what goes around comes around? Does it always happen? What do you think? I do. Okay. So I'll give you scenario number one. Uh, what if someone steals from someone? What happens to them in this world? So let's say I steal your computer from you. What happens? Uh, well, if I find out, you get in trouble. If I don't, you get away with it. Well, I mean, the world's not fair. Yeah. I can get away with it. Yeah. Then we get do a more extreme example. Suppose we have an undergrad. Suppose you don't like your grade in my class, and then you kill me. Yeah. What would justice be? That you get executed? It doesn't bring me back. That you get life in prison? That doesn't bring me back either. And so, yeah, we're saying that uh, maybe in moments, this world is fair. But overall, completely, no, the world's not fair. And then think of bigger things like oppression and how would people get away with oppression or genocide and all those things. And so the day of judgment is a day where 100% of all justice gets fulfilled. And it's usually focused on two categories, the things that I owe Allah and the things that I owe others. So things that I owe Allah would be, for example, like the five pillars, you know, daily prayers, fasting, all that stuff. And, you know, part of that is to seek forgiveness for all the times I fall short. And then the things I owe other people like honesty, fulfilling their rights, so forth and so on. And so, so part of the day of judgment is you're literally going back and forth and any good you owe other people, you pay them off and you might exhaust all the good that you've done because you just did so much bad in the world too that you got away with. So if you do something wrong in this world and you pay for it in this world, then you're cool on the day of judgment. You've already paid for it, right? But the day of judgment, everything gets paid. And so we're saying this world truly isn't actually fair, uh, but it doesn't mean it's evil. Um, but uh, the day of judgment, everything gets made completely fair. So no one escapes justice on the day of judgment. Belief in destiny. Yeah, just like you said, if you meant to be, it will be. And this we'll also talk about in class. Part of the idea of destiny is that there are some things that are just out of your control. So, for example, you can't you can't decide when and where you're going to be born because you're already born, right? Mm -hmm. My mom couldn't hold me in for another twenty days for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and so, then likewise, um, you also can't dictate when and where you're going to die. 
So if someone uh, wants to take their life and it's not their time to die, they're not going to die. What do you mean? Meaning, so whatever it is, you are scheduled to die and where that's already set. So let's say you are scheduled to die in the year 2040 on January 4th, 3.42 p.m. in Nepal. Somehow or other, you're going to make it there, even if you spent your entire life in Chicago. And you're going to make it there for, for your death. Of course, we don't know when that moment is. We don't know where that moment is. And there's another thing to think about, like in terms of healthcare and such. So healthcare, uh, the focus is on quality of life. You still do everything you can because quality of life goes hand in hand with trying to extend life. But the point is that a law controls when your life is going to end. Now, think about when you've lost someone. Sometimes we say, oh, if only I did this, if only I did that. And we're saying, no, it was their time to go. There's nothing you could have done. Question, is there a purgatory? Is there that like in between? Yeah. No. Well, the thing is when you're dead, you're in this condition of death before the day of judgment begins. So everyone who's died, so Kobe Bryant, everybody is, is in that place. So it's like basically being in the grave, even though your body may not exist anymore. And you still have a type of consciousness like you do when you're sleeping until the day of judgment begins. So even if your body isn't functioning anymore, you're still kind of there and you're basically in that state up until the day of judgment comes. Yeah. So think about it. Even when you go to sleep at night or you're an undergrad, when you go to sleep in the day, uh, your physical body is in one place, but where's your consciousness? And just like you might have five, like five different dreams, five different nights, and your physical body, you might have gone to sleep in the same place in your bed, but in each of those five dreams, you're in completely different places, right? Because that's how dreams work. And so that's your consciousness is going to be like that when you die. That your physical body doesn't exist anymore. It's going to decompose or whatever, but you will still have consciousness. And just like in a dream, Usually, you don't really have control of what's going on. You sort of have control of your thinking. You may not have as much control of your actions in the dream. That's how it's going to be mm. in that stage. But then, the day of judgment, you're going to be more awake on the day of judgment than you are right now. So think of, you know, like sometimes you're more awake than others, even though you're awake all the time. Like uh, sometimes you feel just really, really wide awake. The whatever moment that was in your life where you're most wide awake and alert will still be less than how you're going to be on the day of judgment in terms of being wide awake. Because there's no fog whatsoever. It's a hundred percent clarity when we face it. Okay, so those are the big things of belief. And again, like in this book, it took like three pages, but all that combined is literally like a paragraph you know, in some commentary about the paragraph. Any questions about any of that? Mm-mm. And also, okay, good. So also notice all the things that are not listed. Like you don't have to believe in gyms. We all love talking about gyms. You don't have to believe in all that stuff. So each of these things is is also listing what uh, we, the bare bones that we have to believe in. It's also getting rid of everything else, listing everything else as secondary.
And that's the core belief of all of Islam. And then let's do a little bit about the rulings of the sacred law. And, and the first thing to take is that when we are practicing Islam, we have levels of obligation on all the different actions. And so there's a small list of things that we're obligated to do. Like we're obligated to speak the truth. Again, we're talking about here like a normal situation, like not like if your life is dependent on it or something. And we're obligated for like to go hudge at least once in your life on the pilgrimage, if you can afford it. And if you're able, you're obligated to fast in Ramadan. If you, and then, you know, the, like the prayers, the zakat, all those things. And so uh, where all the schools of law agree, that is called fard. Basically, it's, it means just about everyone agrees. These are things you have to do. Which means if you don't do them without a good excuse, the risk is that you're committing a sin. Yeah. Again, right now we're just talking about the general sense. We're not talking about like the living experience where someone might struggle to pray, maybe because they're, they're new as a Muslim, or someone might struggle to fast because, because you know, they just get hungry all the time or something. We're just talking about this, the principle itself. Mm -hmm. Wajib which is number two on page 17, in the Hanafi school, this is a small detail, the Hanafis are saying you have to do these things just as much as you have to do the fart things. But others disagree. Yeah. So small detail. Which means what? See category number three, sunnah. We emphasize sunnah. So wajib are things that in the Hanafi interpretation, they're saying you have to do it. But other people are saying, no, it's sunnah. This is a super tiny list of things. One example is Eid prayer. So the actual prayers for Eid. The Hanafis say, yeah, you have to do them just like your daily prayers. Yeah. But others say, no, uh, no, it's sunnah. So it's, these are differences of opinion on little tiny specific issues. So the big thing to know is farth, which is things that you have to do. Sunnah are things that the prophet did and he told us we either have to do it or we should do it. Mustahab are things that the prophet said, if you do it, it's a good idea. Now, if we evaluate them according to sin level, if I skip a farth without a good reason, sin. If I skip a sunnah without a good reason, may or may not be a sin. If I skip number four, mustahab, which is also uh, uh, sort of like what we call nuffle, if I skip it, no sin at all. They're just good things to do. Okay. Now, why is it important to know these things? To get a sense of what are the things that I have to do. Short list of things. Yeah. And then number seven or number eight is the haram. And those are the things I'm not supposed to do. So the goal is to know both of those lists clearly. And then everything else is in between. So number one and number eight. Fard and Haram. Now, if you talk to your MSA peers, do I have to do this? Do I don't? You know, this is part of the Haram. Usually they don't even know. 
So they're going to think everything's haram. Yeah, but the list of haram things is actually really small. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Again, let me know if you have any questions about any of these things. And then, so purification, I mean, you pretty much addressed that. Uh, the bigger point is uh, when do I have to take a full bath? Now, in our culture, uh, outside of quarantine, basically everybody showers every single day, right? You know, it's not every day, then every other day or something. And, but more or less, everyone showers every single day if they, if they have the capability and everything. So a lot of this seems like it doesn't apply, but so these are rules for all times and places, especially if people live in the desert when they don't have uh, much access to water. And so the basic principle is that you should take a full bath a minimum once a week, usually every Friday. And then, then there's uh, uh, the different scenarios of when else you should. Yeah. And then the, the basics on how to do it, you know, you've already talked about. So that's called Russell. Yeah, this is the full bath, but it basically means the full bath in a particular order. That's what we're saying. Yeah. And a way to think about this, it's actually an act of worship in the form of cleaning. You know, like the daily Muslim prayers, it's sort of like yoga. So yoga, historically, you know, when you go to the gym and they do yoga, it's what? It's just basically stretching exercises and you act like you're all spiritual, right? Historically in Hinduism, it was an act of worship. And the salah, the namaz, is almost exactly like that. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, it's like an act of worship with your tongue, an act of worship with what you do with your body. And the wudu is an act of worship in the form of cleaning. So it's not just like washing yourself up. It's an act of worship in the form of cleaning. And so ghusl, so wudu is just a specific part of your body. The whistle of your whole body in the form, so it's worship in the form of cleaning. And so, just like charity, charity is okay, I'll give you some money. Zakat is worship in the form of charity, which means it has very specific rules. Mm -hmm. All that stuff makes more sense as we go through life and such. But yeah, that's pretty much covering everything you did. So, what I'd like you to do uh, for next time is uh, let's. Can I get more homework? Because I'm like two weeks behind. You want more homework? Yeah. Wait, so you're two weeks behind. Oh, in terms of our meetings. Okay. I thought you meant like you want more homework even though you're already behind in homework. Okay, okay. <laughs> right, so here's what I'd like you to do. Uh, look up a couple articles. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the author is the same. I'll put it in the chat box. Yeah. The author is Yeah. He's a scholar, one of my longtime teachers. He lives in Naperville. Okay. One article is called One God. Many names. Okay. Where's the, the stamp of creation? And when you go through them, read them in this order. Okay. Okay. Actually, uh, I'll just add one more. Um, one God, many names. <laughs> Mercy, Stamp of Creation is like three pages. One God, many names might be four pages. Islam, the Cultural Imperative might be like seven pages. 
And so again, pretend that I don't know anything and carefully go through each one, almost paragraph by paragraph teaching it to me. So however far you get for next week, inshallah. Mm -hmm. Sound good? Got it. Okay, cool. Any questions? Um, maybe. <laughs> Meaning, is this, uh, should I turn off the recording? Or? Yeah. All right, so we'll have a little homework. We're going to show the way that we live.